felt slightly off on my end, but oh well. <laughs> we'll sync it up. Okay, I'll get the gist in there. <laughs> yeah, it was quite the day. And then before I leave, my my uh, manager comes up to me and he's very like, I think you could tell like we're all having a really rough day. So he comes up to me and he's like, um, you're you're working l- just lunch shift, right? I'm like, yeah, it was first shift. <laughs> and he's like, um, when you leave, would would you be able to run and get me coffee? I was like, yeah. He's like, are, are you sure? Because if it's if you can't, like, I totally get it. I'm like, I'll go and get you coffee. He's like, thank you. <laughs> he's like so scared. <laughs> I think you can like see like in my eyes, like I was ready to leave. <laughs> like. I'm nice to everybody, but I think he could, like, read it on me. Like, I was ready to just <laughs> karate chop someone in the <laughs> I will. I will go to the store. And get, I, I got to get trash bags anyways. Like, Are you sure it's not, like, out of your way? I'm like, it'll be fine. I, I'll grab it and I'll bring it back. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right, well... Hello, and welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. We're having a day. But you know what? This this is the second part of the birthday episode, so we can do whatever the fuck we want at this point. Facts. I I am drinking uh, the 19 Crimes Snoop Dogg wine, which I loved the bottle. Uh, he's got a signature on the label, and then when you pull the cork out, there's an image of him on the cork. <laughs> See, me, I am drinking an Irish cream cold brew, because it is officially Christmas, and <laughs> I don't care. It is November 6th, and it's officially Christmas time! Woo-hoo. Oh good, I can put my tree up. <laughs> I was hoping to do that tonight. I'm not going to lie. It might de-stress me. Might make me more stressed. Might de-stress putting, me. Uh, putting a tree up kind of stresses me a little bit, honestly. See, it's it's honestly not as bad as, like, you'd think. Like, my mom gets annoyed, like, watching me do it. Like, not with me, but she's just like, I would never. Because mine, my tree is one of those where it's branches and you have to put in every single branch oh, in its own place. Oh, I hated All doing that. Yeah. She's like, we need to get one where it folds up. I'm like, I mean, it's kind of like tedious, but it kind of gets my mind off of like murder and wanting to be the full Scorpio that I am. <laughs> and yeah, just... <laughs> okay, but... But the branches part, uh, they, it, that's what makes me stabby. Because I'm getting poked by all the little branches as I'm trying to like fluff them and make them look mm-hmm. nice. It's a cheap pre-lit tree. But you still have to like fluff it. And I hate that part. See, the lights. The lights is what, what makes me stabby. Well, that's why if I bought a pre-lit, pre-lit tree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I said, see, you had the right idea. Yeah, that's what that's my dream is a pre-lit tree. It was thirty five dollars at Walmart. Now I'm questioning so, myself. I have a big tree, though. It's big. Oh. It's just we have low ceilings. I can't have a big tree. So it's like six feet tall. Yeah, mine's like six or seven feet, but it's just below the ceiling. So like it just makes it when you when you put like the star on top, you're yeah. you're just there. Yeah. 
She's petite, but she's cute. So <laughs> it's fine. And it was only $35. So I figured if the lights go out on this one, like do my last, I don't care. Even if it lasts just a year, because it was $35. I had to buy all new ornaments the other day Brat because row. I knew I knew it was coming. With Joey, even though he is five, with, with his autism and stuff, he doesn't quite understand why I tell him no and why it's not good to throw things at the walls or on the ground. Mm. And last year, I had to make sure he didn't get stabbed by glass. Oh. Because he shattered, like, at least one or two by my door. So, I had, I went out and bought all new, non-bustable, like, yeah. like, we good. Like, good this is because that way if you throw it at a wall, you're not going to get glass shards in your toes. Okay, thanks. <laughs> you know what, though? I could see for some stress relief, if you could take them somewhere and, like, bust some glass bulbs. That that just feels like it would be it would be pleasing to me. I don't know why that is. So I can see the appeal. Yeah, I really want to go to one of those stress rooms. Where oh yeah, the rage room. Like, rage room. I want to go to a rage room and just like take a bat and break shit. Sorry. <laughs> like office space, just take an old fax machine out to a field and yeah. beat the shit. God, it sounds fantastic. Okay, take something from your work and then just destroy it. I mean, if I could do that with the little computers that we keep on the tables, that would be my office space moment. I would take them all and just break them all and then set it on fire and melt it all. I have a handgun. I think it would probably be pleasant to shoot one of them. <laughs> just, you know. Yeah, no. Stress relief. Just Scorpio things. <laughs> yeah. Just destruction and murder. And speaking of murder. Right. <laughs> <laughs> let me get let me get to it. My obsession, I don't know what it is. I've always had this thing with like secret rooms. So the Winchester Mystery House, all that stuff was I was obsessed as a child. And I've talked before of I just want a bookshelf that leads to a secret room. That's what I want mm -hmm. in my life. That's like a life goal. So today I'm going to talk about the case I read about as a kid, which is slightly disturbing. Uh, they got me interested in true crime. And that was H.H. Holmes. He's, and that's not even his real name, which, I mean, his, his real name is something. Herman Webster Mudgett. It's a wonderful name, was born May 16th, 1861 in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, to Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate Page Price. Now, I'll give you a warning on this, too, because this is like 10 pages of shit that I, I copied a lot of from Wikipedia, because <laughs> I was interested, but at the same time, I did not feel like reading a shit ton of books about it but I mean there's The Devil in the White City is probably the most popular H.H. Holmes book where was I at? I've distracted myself uh, he, he was better known as Dr. Henry Howard Holmes and was a serial killer active from 1891 to 1894 now I say that as in like active serial killer but he was doing shit long before then like 
He's a shady dude. At 16, Holmes graduated from Phillips Exeter Academy and took teaching jobs in Gilmanton and later in nearby Alton. On July 4th, 1878, at the age of 17, he married Clara Lovering in Alton. Their son, Robert Lovering Mudgett, was born February 3rd, 1880 in Luden, New Hampshire, when Holmes was 18. That's, that's pretty damn young. Mm-hmm. And I will apologize to New Hampshire for probably slaughtering the names of your towns because I don't know how to pronounce them. Holmes enrolled in the University of Vermont in Burlington at 18, but was dissatisfied with the school and left one year later. In 1880, he entered the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery and graduated in June 1884 after passing his exams. While enrolled, he worked in the anatomy lab. He later apprenticed in New Hampshire under a noted advocate of human dissection. Years later, when Holmes was suspected of murder and claimed to be nothing but an insurance fraudster, he admitted to using cadavers to defraud life insurance companies several times in college. So (laughs) he was likely also doing that at the University of Michigan, which is the only connection to Michigan this story has. (laughs) (laughs) But it's my birthday episode, and I can do what I want. (laughs) I'll do what I want. We've already decided I'm doing what I want. It's my purse. I don't know you. (laughs) (laughs) I just feel like, you know what? It's a gift to ourselves that we can talk about whatever murder we want for a birthday. Maybe also a Christmas present to ourselves. I don't know. There you go. Who knows? It can be any holiday. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. Let's talk about the St. Valentine's Day massacre. <laughs> oh my gosh. Later. I, I probably will. I wouldn't be surprised. Or like <laughs> I would probably for Valentine's Day, I would probably do one of a, like a serial killer woman who just killed every single man that she married. Oh, like a black widow. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. That would be an that. excellent. Yes. Let's do <laughs> so watch out for that one, guys. Uh, <laughs> Housemates described Holmes as treating Clara violently. And in 1884, before his graduation, she moved back to New Hampshire and later wrote she knew little of him afterwards. So claps to Clara. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> you, you got out. Before it got really bad, because it's going right. to get really bad. After he moved to Moore's Forks, New York, a rumor spread that Holmes had been seen with a little boy who'd later disappeared. Holmes claimed the boy went back to his home in Massachusetts. No investigation took place, and Holmes quickly left town. He later traveled to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and got a job as a keeper at Norristown State Hospital, but quit after a few days. He later took a position at a drugstore in Philadelphia, but while he was working there, a boy died after taking medicine that was purchased at the store. Holmes denied any involvement in the child's death and immediately left the city. Because that's not suspicious. Right. That's kind of sus, Holmes. (laughs) Oh no, another child has disappeared. And he leaves immediately afterwards, both times. Uh, Right before moving to Chicago, he changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes to avoid the possibility of being exposed by victims of his previous scams. In his confession after his arrest, Holmes claimed he had killed his former medical school classmate, Robert Leacock, in 1886 for insurance money. Leacock, however, died in Watford, Ontario, in Canada on October 5th, 1889. 
1886, while still married to Clara, Holmes married Murda Belknap, who was one year younger than him in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Everybody has interesting names. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, He filed for divorce from Clara a few weeks after marrying Murda, alleging infidelity on her part, which I found ridiculous since he's the one who married somebody else before he was divorced. So, (laughs) dude. (laughs) I mean, even if she did. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to blame her. <laughs> In this case, the dude was a psycho. The claims could not be proven, and the suit went nowhere. Surviving paperwork indicated she probably was never even informed of the suit. The divorce was never finalized and was dismissed on June 4th, 1891, on the grounds of want of prosecution. Holmes had a daughter with Murda, Lucy Theodate Holmes, who was born on July 4th, 1889, in Chicago, Illinois. Holmes lived with Murda and Lucy in Wilmette, Illinois, and spent most of his time in Chicago tending to business. While in Chicago, after his arrival, Holmes began working at Elizabeth S. Holton's drugstore at the corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street. He was hardworking and eventually bought the store. And then Holmes also eventually bought an empty lot across from the drugstore, where construction began in 1887 for a two-story mixed-use building with apartments on the second floor and retail spaces, including a new drugstore. Mm. So this was his uh, his apartments of death? I don't know. Yeah. He was trying to do something, and yeah, I don't know, I don't know what we want to call that one. A creditor of Holmes named John D. Brule died of apoplexy on April 17, 1891 in the drugstore. It is unknown if Holmes was involved with his death. When Holmes declined to pay the architects or the steel company, Atna Iron and Steel, they sued in 1888. In 1892, he added a third floor, telling investors and suppliers he intended to use it as a hotel during the upcompany World's Columbian Exposition. Though the hotel portion was only somewhat completed, with three stories in a basement. The first floor was the storefront. And the second story consisted of his elaborate torture rooms, which contained a chute that led to the basement. The third floor held more apartment rooms. There were soundproof rooms and mazes of hallways, some of which seemed to go nowhere. Many of the rooms were outfitted with chutes that would drop straight down to the basement, where Holmes had acid vats, quick lime, and a crematorium to dispose of his victims' bodies. But, I mean, this dude was also selling bodies to uh, medical schools. So we wouldn't be surprised if some of them just were like, shipped away. There you go. (laughs) Get some money. Furniture suppliers found Holmes was hiding their materials, for which he had never paid, in hidden rooms and passages throughout the building. Their search made the news, and investors for the planned hotel pulled out of the deal when a jeweler in the building showed them the articles. In 1894, some police officers inspected the hotel while Holmes was out. During the inspection, they found rooms with hinged walls and false partitions, rooms linked with secret passageways, and even airtight rooms that were connected to pipelines filled with gas, which Holmes used as gas chambers. That's <laughs> real fucking creepy. Like, I don't know how he was able to build that. Uh, that, seems like a, that seems like a lot. Uh, Holmes would use chutes to deliver the bodies to the basement, and once there, he made use of surgical tables and an array of medical tools to dissect them before selling their organs and bones on the black market and to medical institutions. 
The hotel was gutted by a fire started by an unknown arsonist shortly after Holmes was arrested, but was largely rebuilt and used as a post office until 1938. Besides his infamous murder castle, that was the name, I forgot I wrote it down, <laughs> Holmes also had a one-story factory which he claimed to be used for glass bending. It is unknown if the uh, factory furnace was ever actually used for glass bending or to cremate incriminating evidence of Holmes' crimes. So this is this is a lot. This is all continuing. <laughs> I feel like I'm skipping around a lot, but I'm trying. You're good. Um, and then something happened with Holmes and Lucy's marriage. I'm not sure what. Um, maybe the fraud or um, all the time he was spending at his weird <laughs> murder hotel. <laughs> right. Um, either way, Holmes married Georgiana Yoke on January 17th, 1894 in Denver, Colorado, while still married to both Clara and Murda. And I, I feel like his bigamy kind of flies under the radar compared to the murders, but... Right. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of that, apparently. Okay, so now we can get into the more of the murder murdery details. One of Holmes' earlier murder victims was his mistress, because of course he had one. Julia Smythe. She was the wife of Ned Connor, who had moved into Holmes' building and began working at his pharmacy's jewelry counter. After Connor found out about Smythe's affair with Holmes, he quit his job and moved away, leaving Smythe and her daughter Pearl behind. Smythe gained custody of Pearl and remained at the hotel, continuing her relationship with Holmes. However, Julia and Pearl disappeared on Christmas Eve I feel like I'm skipping around because these dates are all weird. In 1891, Holmes later claimed she had died during an abortion, though that was never able to be confirmed. Another likely mistress, Emmeline Seagrand, began working in the building in May 1892 and disappeared that December. Another woman who vanished, Edna Van Tassel, who was also believed to have been among Holmes' victims. Holmes' usual murder method was by suffocation of his victims, including an overdose of chloroform, overexposure to lighting gas fumes, and trapped in an airless vault. Holmes also claimed to have used starvation and burning victims alive in his castle. While working in the chemical bank building on Dearborn Street, Holmes met and became close friends with Benjamin Pietzel, a carpenter with a criminal past who is exhibiting in the same building, um, a coal bin he had invented. Holmes used Pizzo as his right-hand man for several criminal schemes. A district attorney later described Pizzo as Holmes' tool, or his creature. In early 1893, a one-time actress named Minnie Williams moved to Chicago. Holmes claimed to have met her in an employment office, though there were rumors he had met her in Boston years earlier. He offered her a job at the hotel as his personal stenographer, and she accepted. Holmes persuaded Williams to transfer the deed to her property in Fort Worth, Texas, to a man named Alexander Bond, who was an alias the Holmes used. So he can already know things aren't going to go well for her. Right. Now, in April 1893, Williams transferred the deed with Holmes serving as the notary. Holmes later signed the deed over to Pietzel, giving him the alias Benton T. Lyman. The next month, Holmes and Williams, presenting themselves as husband and wife, 
rented an apartment in Chicago's Lincoln Park. Minnie's sister Annie came to visit, and in July, she wrote to her aunt that she planned to accompany Brother Harry to Europe. Neither Minnie nor Annie were seen alive after July 5, 1893. Based on his former medical education and his connections, Holmes was able to sell skeletons to medical labs and schools. He, and sometimes a hired assistant, were accused of stripping the flesh of the bodies, dissecting them, and preparing the viable skeletons. The rest of the remains would remain tossed in pits of lime or acid, effectively breaking down the remaining evidence. With insurance companies pressing to prosecute him for arson, Holmes left Chicago in July 1894 and reappeared in Fort Worth, where he had the property taken from Vinnie Williams. <laughs> Thanks for this. Uh, I'm going to kill you now and then go to, <laughs> go to where you had me sign over a deed. There, once again... He attempted to build a structure like in Chicago without paying his suppliers and contractors. That building is not known as a site of any additional killings. Luckily for Texas. In July 1894, Holmes was arrested and briefly jailed for the first time on the charge of selling mortgage goods in St. Louis, Missouri. He was quickly bailed out, but while in jail, he struck up a conversation with a convicted outlaw named Marion Hedgepath, who was serving a 25-year sentence. Combs concocted a plan to cheat an insurance company out of $10,000 by taking out a policy on himself, then faking his death. Holmes promised Hedgepath $500 in exchange for the name of a lawyer who could be trusted. Holmes was directed to a young St. Louis attorney named Jephtha Howe. Howe was in practice with his older brother, Alfonso, who had no involvement with Holmes or Pietzel or their fraudulent activities. However... Jephtha Howe agreed to Holmes' scheme. Unfortunately for him, Holmes' plan to fake his own death failed when the insurance company became suspicious and refused to pay. Instead, Holmes concocted a similar plan with Pietzel. Pietzel agreed to fake his own death so his wife could collect a $10,000 life insurance policy, which she was to split with Holmes and Jephtha Howe. The scheme, which was to take place in Philadelphia called for Pietzel to set himself up as an inventor under the name B.F. Perry and then be killed and disfigured in a lab explosion. Holmes was to find a cadaver to play the role of Pietzel. Instead, Holmes killed Pietzel by knocking him unconscious with chloroform and setting his body on fire with the use of benzene. <laughs> Just the look on your face. It's like, what? <laughs> like, I've heard all of this before, but it's still so mind-boggling when you, like, re-listen to it. Yeah, you just oh. hit poke up with your elbow like, hey, fake your own death. Just kidding. You're going to die. <laughs> right. Uh, joke's on you. We already know this doesn't work, so I'm just going to skip to the part where I just kill you. Right. <laughs> In his confession, Holmes implied Pietzel was still alive after he used the chloroform on him before he set him on fire. However, forensic evidence presented at Holmes' later trial showed chloroform had been administered after Pietzel's death, a fact of which the insurance company was unaware, presumably to fake suicide to exonerate Holmes should he be charged with murder. Holmes collected the insurance payout on the basis of the genuine Pietzel corpse. Holmes then went on to manipulate Pietzel's unsuspecting wife into allowing three of her five children Alice, Nellie, and Howard to be placed in his custody. Now why he had to go do that, I don't know. It's bullshit, and I can't believe 
<laughs> she trusted this guy to go, yes, go ahead and take my children. Like, why wouldn't you just take care of your own children? Like, I don't understand. Yeah. Like, you're, you supposedly were getting the insurance money. Why? Why? <laughs> it's all pretty sus. And yeah, she was like, yeah, cool. Whatever, man. You're faking deaths. Go ahead and take these kids. Oh, uh, fun. Uh, the eldest daughter and the baby remained with Mrs. Pizzo. Holmes and the three Pizzle children traveled into Canada. Simultaneously, he escorted Mrs. Pizzle along a parallel route, all the while using various aliases and lying to Mrs. Pizzle concerning her husband's death, uh, claiming he was hiding in London, as well as lying to her about the true whereabouts of her three missing children. In Detroit, just before entering Canada, they were only separated by a few blocks. Holmes was staying at another location with his wife, who was unaware of the whole affair. <clears throat> yeah, okay. Holmes would later confess to murdering Alice and Nellie by forcing them into a large trunk and locking them inside. He drilled a hole in the lid of the trunk and put one end of a hose through the hole, attaching the other end to a gas line to asphyxiate the girls. And that isn't the saddest shit. <laughs> like just crazy mm -hmm. like why did you need to kill them what was the yeah, point it just maybe maybe he went he he probably knew that he couldn't do them all at one time so you had to split them up into groups this is my thought process on it and he knew that he had to get rid of them all at some point though because he was at Peitzel was dead yeah. so he knew that like when he never showed up to meet his family his wife was gonna be like what the fuck and maybe contact authorities? <laughs> like, hey, we did some insurance fraud, but he's missing for real. <laughs> Holmes buried their nude bodies in the cellar of his rental house at 16 Vincent Street in, in Toronto. This home and address are no longer... Uh, this, yeah, I can't even speak right now. <laughs> what time is it? Where am I? Uh, <laughs> this home and address no longer exist. Frank Geyer, a Philadelphia police detective assigned to investigate Holmes and find the three missing children, found the decomposed bodies of the two Pitzel girls in the cellar of the Toronto home. Detective Geyer wrote, The deeper we dug, the more horrible the odor became, and when we reached the depth of three feet, we discovered what appeared to be the bone of the forearm of a human being. Geyer then went to Indianapolis, where Holmes had rented a cottage. Holmes was reported to have visited a local pharmacy to purchase the drugs which he used to kill young Howard Pitzel in a repair shop to sharpen the knives which he used to chop up the body before burning it. The boy's teeth and bits of bone were discovered in the Holmes chimney. Holmes' murder spree finally ended when he was arrested in Boston on November 17, 1894 after being tracked there from Philadelphia by the Pinkertons. He was held on an outstanding warrant for horse theft in Texas because the authorities had become more suspicious at this point and Holmes appeared poised to flee the country in the company of his unsuspecting third wife. July 1895, following the discovery of Alice and Nellie's bodies, Chicago police and reporters began investigating Holmes' building in Englewood, now locally referred to as The Castle, Though many sensational claims were made, no evidence was found which could have convicted Holmes in Chicago. Which they're saying they found rooms and all this crazy shit, but 
Apparently he cleaned up. I don't know. Stories of torture equipment found in the building appear to be fiction. So all they had found were like rooms and weird random like shoots and stuff. In October 1895, Holmes was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Pietzel and was found guilty and sentenced to death. By then, it was evident Holmes had also murdered the three missing Pietzel children. Following his conviction, Holmes confessed to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, though some people he confessed to murdering were still alive, and six attempted murders. Holmes was paid $7,500 by the Hearst newspapers in exchange for his confession, which was quickly found to be mostly bullshit, (laughs) honestly. Holmes gave various contradictory accounts of his life, um, initially claiming innocence and later that he was possessed by Satan. His multiple versions of stories made it difficult for researchers and historians to discover the truth. On May 7th, 1896, Holm was hanged at Moyamensing Prison, also known as the Philadelphia County Prison, for the murder of Pietzel. Until the moment of his death, Holmes remained calm and amiable, showing few signs of fear, anxiety, or depression. But despite this, he asked for his coffin to be contained in cement and buried 10 feet deep because he was concerned grave robbers would steal his body and use it for dissection. <laughs> so he was worried. Uh, the same thing would happen to him that he did to who knows how many people, honestly. Right. <laughs> you just want to be like, uh, get fucked. Um, <laughs> right. But um, his death did not go well. Um, when hanged, Holmes' neck did not break. He instead strangled to death slowly, twitching for over 15 minutes before he was pronounced dead 20 minutes after the trap had been sprung. I know it sounds wrong. But Nobody feels bad. <laughs> yeah. He, he asphyxiated people. He asphyxiated to death, essentially. And he, and he asphyxiated and killed children. Yeah. So I don't feel bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. like, good. <laughs> I hope it hurt. Like, that's like, I just. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that anybody would feel bad for that. They'd be like, oh. That sucks for him. (laughs) Maybe you shouldn't have killed all those people. Upon his execution, Holmes' body was interred in an unmarked grave at Holy Cross Cemetery, a Catholic cemetery in the Philadelphia western suburb of Yeadon, Pennsylvania. On New Year's Eve 1909, Hedgepath, who had been pardoned for informing on Holmes, was shot and killed by police officer Edward Jaborek during a holdup at at a Chicago saloon. And then on May 7th, 1914, the Chicago Tribune reported that with the death of Patrick Quinlan, the former caretaker of the castle, the mysterious Holmes castle would remain unexplained. Quinlan had committed suicide by taking strychnine, which sounds awful. Uh, His body was found in his bedroom with a note that read, I couldn't sleep. Dude. Quinlan's surviving relatives claimed he had been haunted for several months and was suffering from hallucinations. The castle itself was mysteriously gutted by fire in August 1895. According to a newspaper clipping from the New York Times, two men were seen entering the back of the building between 8 and 9 p.m. About half an hour later, they were seen exiting the building and running away. 
Following several explosions, the castle went up in flames. Afterwards, investigators found a half-empty gas can underneath the back steps of the building. The building survived the fire and remained in use until it was torn down in 1938. And as I mentioned before, it was occupied by the Englewood branch of the U.S. Postal Service. In 2017, amid allegations Holmes had in fact escaped execution, Holmes' body was exhumed for testing led by Janet Mung of the University of Philadelphia Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. Due to his coffin being contained in cement, his body was found not to have decomposed normally. His clothes were almost perfectly preserved and his mustache was found to be intact. The body was positively identified by his teeth as that of being Holmes. Holmes was then reburied. I can't believe they actually did. <laughs> like the cement thing. Like, <laughs> okay. Stay in there forever then. Holmes' son, Robert, became a certified public accountant and served as city manager of Orlando, Florida, and his daughter, Lucy, became a public school teacher. So that's what I got. It's crazy. Yep. That went on for a really long time. It's a long, it's a long one. It's a long one. In 1888, from August 7 to September 10, Jack the Ripper a.k.a. the Whitechapel Butcher, terrorized the Whitechapel District in Lon London's East End. He murdered and mutilated at least five sex workers, making it obvious that he had knowledge of human anatomy. Jack the Ripper was never captured and remains one of England's and the world's most infamous criminals. In spite of numerous investigations claiming conclusive evidence of the serial killer's identity, his name and motive are still unknown. The nickname Jack the Ripper originates from a letter written by someone who claimed to be the Whitechapel Butcher, published at the time of the attacks. Adding to the mystery of the situation is the fact that several letters were sent by Jack to the London Metropolitan Police Service, also known as Scotland Yard, goading officers about his gruesome activities and guessing on murders to come. Many theories about Jack the Ripper's identity have been produced over the past several decades, which include claims accusing the famous Victorian painter Walter Sickert, a Polish migrant, and even the grandson of Queen Victoria. Hmm. Which is weird. Since 1888, more than 100 suspects have been named, contributing to the folklore surrounding the mystery. In the late 1800s, London's East End was a place that was seen with either empathy or disdain. Even though it was an area where skilled immigrants, mainly Russians and those who were Jewish, came to start a new life and start businesses, the district was infamous for filth, violence, and crime. Sex work was only illegal if the practice caused a public disturbance, and thousands of brothels and low-rent lodging houses provided sexual services during the late 19th century. At the time, the death or murder of a working girl was rarely reported in the press or discussed within higher society. The reality that sex workers were subject to physical attacks, which sometimes resulted in death. Among these common violent crimes was the attack of sex worker Emma Smith, who was beaten and raped with an object by four men. Smith, who later died of, I'm going to butcher this, peritonitis? Sounds right. Sure. <laughs> is remembered as one of many unfortunate female victims who were killed by gangs demanding protection money. 
However, the series of killings that began in August of 88 stood out from other violent crime at the time. They were marked by sadistic butchery, suggesting a mind that was more sociopathic and hateful than most people would comprehend. Jack the Ripper didn't just murder women, he mutilated and humiliated women, and his crimes seemed to portray a loathing for the entire female gender. When Jack the Ripper's murders suddenly stopped in the fall of 88, London citizens wanted answers that would not come. Even more than a century later, the ongoing case, which has spawned an industry of books, films, TV shows, and historical tours, has met been met with several hindrances, including lack of evidence, a range of misinformation and false testimony, and tight regulations by Scotland Yard. Jack the Ripper has been the topic of news stories for more than 130 years and will likely continue to be for decades to come. And then on that note, I have Wikipedia pulled up because I was trying to look for... It was difficult to find a lot on um, the actual victims. Every article that I pulled up was saying that it was going to talk about victims. It was going to talk about things. And then it just talked a lot about what I just said. Yeah, they just kind of give a generic overview of, hey, women died. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I know that. Exactly. So I had to go go on Wikipedia to at least like learn names. And what it's showing is that with the murders, 11 separate murders stretching from April of 88 to February February of 91 were included in a um, Metropolitan Police Service investigation. And they were deemed as the Whitechapel murders. So with this, they're, they're saying that it actually expands from just the fall of 88. Um, they're adding more that they're finding to the list of murders. And oh. that make it seem that it went on longer than what we know of. Which, I mean, it very well could have at that time. It right. wasn't like there were cameras everywhere and capturing no, evidence. Exactly. And it's not like they had like big news TV stories where you could just latch on to something and hear something that day. Um, they're saying that opinions may vary and as to whether the murders should be linked to the same culprit, but five of the 11 Whitechapel murders are widely known as to be his. So the extra ones are just like, they don't know if it should be allowed to be added or not, but most experts point to deep slash wounds to the throat followed by extensive abdominal and genital area mutilation, which is common for the Ripper, the removal of internal organs and uh, progressive facial mutilations of distinctive uh, features, which that's him. Um, The first two cases in that file were Emma, Emma Smith and Martha Tabram. But Emma Smith, from what we've, you know, heard everything else and what I had spoke about before was done by a gang. So I don't know why, why they're trying to say it's not, um, because she was pretty, she was like brutalized pretty bad. Yeah. Um, it is showing that, okay, here are some, here are the victims. They finally came up with it. God, you have to go forever to find them. The Ripper victims that are known are Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. Marianne Nichols was discovered at about 3.40 a.m. 
and she had been uh, last seen alive approximately one hour before her she was found. Her throat was severed by two deep cuts, one of which completely severed all the tissue down to her vertebrae. Oh. Her vagina had been stabbed twice. Oh, and the lower part of her abdomen was partly ripped open by a deep, jagged wound, causing her bowels to protrude. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. It, he was like... That's brutal. It is horrifying. Because I've, I've seen so many stories. I've, like, watched shows and stuff on the Jack the Ripper. And it just, like, the things that he did are just very... Yikes. Like, I can't even imagine someone having these type of thoughts in their head. It's just... Ugh. One le- week later, uh, the body of Annie Chapman was discovered at about 6 a.m., as in the case of Marianne Nichols, her throat had been severed by deep cuts, two deep cuts. Her abdomen had been cut entirely open, with a section of flesh from her stomach being placed upon her left shoulder. Uh, weird. Yeah, and another section of uh, skin and flesh, plus her small intestines, being removed and placed above her right shoulder. What the fuck? So, and that's something that you find with Jack the Ripper as well, is as long as he's given enough time and nobody's walking in on him, he takes time in just removing things. Just doing some setting weird. things up. We- yeah. It's weird shit. It just doesn't make fucking sense. No. Her autopsy also reviewed, uh, revealed that her uterus and sections of her bladder and vagina had been removed. The hell? Yeah. After Chapman's murder, Elizabeth Long described having seen Chapman uh, standing outside the area at about 5.30 a.m. So it had just... Somehow he did that pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, And that they had seen her in the company of a dark-haired man wearing a brown deer stalker hat and a dark overcoat and of a shabby genteel appearance. Hmm. According to this witness, the man had asked Chapman the question, will you? To which Chapman replied, yes. And then now, I don't... So, who knows to what that was about? Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were both killed in the early morning hours of Sunday on uh, September 30th of 88. So they were killed on the same night. Stride's body was discovered at approximately 1 a.m., the cause of death was a single clear-cut incision measuring about six inches across her neck, which had severed her left carotid artery and her trachea before um, terminating beneath her right jaw. Oh. The absence of uh, any further mutilations to the body has led to an uncertainty as to whether it was committed by him or whether he was interrupted during the attack. Which is what I think had happened as to and to why he got a second victim. I think it was because he didn't get to, I don't know, how do you say, quote unquote. Finish. Ugh, God, it makes me like want to vomit. Yeah. But yes. Yeah. He didn't get off on what made him get off. And so because of that, he was like, well, because I, I don't think... With everything that I've read and I, I continue to read on Jack the Ripper, I don't think it was the actual murder that excited him. I think it was 
what he did to the bodies after the fact mm. that yeah. excited him. And if that part was interrupted, he's going to immediately, like, not, I don't know. Ugh. The psychology is uh, interesting, I guess, to to know that you're taking a risk by doing something out in the open where you can be caught instead of, like, taking a victim somewhere and then doing that to them. Right. Just to be somewhere where you could be caught. I don't know. Yeah. Um, several witnesses later told police that they had seen Stride in the, um, with a man uh, on that evening of uh, the 29th and in the early hours of the 30th. But each gave differing descriptions. Some said that her, uh, that the guy was fair, others dark. Some said that he was shabbily dressed and others said that he was well dressed. So it's like, what is it, guys? Don't, <laughs> like, get it together. Um, Edo's body was found three quarters of an hour after Elizabeth Stride's body was found. Her throat was severed from ear to ear ugh, and her abdomen ripped open by a long, deep, and jagged wound before her intestines had been placed over her right shoulder. Which, why over the shoulder? It just doesn't with a section of intestine being completely detached and placed between her body and left arm. And they have a contemporary police drawing. Is it gross? I mean, I'm looking at it, and I don't know if, if anybody put this together, but it looked like he was trying to turn the body into a vagina. And I know that sounds weird. <laughs> like, I, I don't mean... Like, it literally looks... Like, here, I can try to screen share so you, at least you can see what I'm talking about here. This right here. Well, you know, that would You see that be... it's almost like he was turning it, like, artfully. Ugh. Like, I, obviously, it's not art to a normal human being. But it's almost like, in his mind, he was trying to create... I don't know. It was... Well, uh, he did have a fascination, apparently, with reproductive organs. Because he's right. getting down yeah. there a lot, like... Removing them and stuff, but I mean, does, like to me, that's what it would view. I don't know if it was just because of the drawings of the time, but to me, that's what it would almost like. I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. <laughs> he, well, I I would say he obviously had mommy issues. <laughs> Very much so. That maybe um, his mother was a prostitute. Who knows? Sex worker. Sorry. Yeah, that's what I'm guessing. Yeah, the amount of times I had to turn that word into sex worker. Because, <laughs> well, no, because so many, like, even articles aren't. Yeah, everything like, uses that old language. Still, yeah. Her left kidney and the major part of her uterus had been removed, and her face had been disfigured, with her nose severed, her cheeks slashed, and cuts measuring a quarter of an inch and a half, respectively, vertically. Uh, incised through each of her eyelids. Jeez. So to me, it seems like he was very angry that he got interrupted the first time. So yeah. he was taking it out even worse mm -hmm. on Edo's. And that's at least what it seems to me. Um, <laughs> my my dog and cat are both sleeping next to me right now. And the dog is just every once in a I while heard, letting out a groan. I heard that snore. <laughs> a triangular uh, incision. It's just saying at the apex of which pointed towards her eye had also been carved upon each of her cheeks. 
So it was like they were like, why? It just doesn't. The section of these are doctor word lingo. I oracle. I don't know what that part of the ear is. Um, oh, it's saying it's like the outside. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and lobe of her right ear was later recovered from her clothing. Ew. The police surgeon who conducted the uh, autopsy upon her body stated these, uh, in his opinion, these mutilations would have taken at least five minutes to complete. It doesn't seem like long. No. To do that. Not at all. A local cigarette salesman named Joseph Luend, I believe is how you pronounce it, had passed through the square with two friends shortly before the murder. And he described seeing a fair-haired man of shabby appearance with a woman who may have been Eddowes. Luen's companions were unable to confirm his description, and the murders of Strident Eddowes ultimately became known as the double event. A section of Eddowes' bloody apron was found at the entrance to a tenement at 2.55 a.m. A chalk inscription upon the wall directly above this piece of apron read, the Jews, but they spell it J-U-W-E-S, are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Which, it says this graffito became known as the Golston Street Gaffiata, or Gaffito. The message appeared to imply that a Jew, or Jewish persons in general, were responsible for the series of murders. But it's unclear whether the graffito was written by the murderer on dropping the section of apron or if it was merely incidental and nothing to do with the case. Because such graffiti were common in the area. The police, or Scotland Yard, it says police commissioner Charles Warren feared that the graffito might spark anti-Semitic riots and ordered the writing be washed away before dawn. Hmm. Which, I can appreciate that because, you know, you don't want <laughs> extreme, like, yeah. Yeah, if it happened to be there beforehand and then someone was killed, yeah, you'd get blame. They did produce a picture of the next victim. I'd never actually seen any of the real police photographs, so that's pretty wild, bro. Um, the extensively, yeah, no kidding, mutilated and disemboweled body of Mary Jane Kelly was discovered lying on the bed in a single room where she lived. Um, at 10.45 a.m., her face on Friday the 9th of November of, of 1888, her face had been hacked beyond recognition with her throat severed down to the spine and the abdomen almost empty of its organs. I mean, I'm going to be honest, there's not much of her lower body. Ew. It's legs that are barely attached too much. Well, I feel nauseous. <laughs> oh, that's something you want to see in the morning. It's, well, it's just it's and it's not like I, I I can't handle blood or anything, but it's just very vicious. Yeah, that it like makes me tear up because I'm like, how could anybody do like that is gruesome, and the fact that it's real just it's not some, yeah, yeah. Her uterus, kidneys, and one breast had been placed beneath her head. So that's what's holding it up. Okay. Ew. 
and other viscera uh, from her body placed beside her foot about the bed and sections of her abdomen and thighs upon a bedside table. The heart was missing from the crime scene. Multiple ashes found within the fireplace at her home or where she was found suggested that her murderer had burnt several combustible items to illuminate the room as he mutilated her body. So he made sure to get it bright in there so he could take his time. Oh, gross. A recent fire had been severe enough to melt the solder between a kettle and its spout, which had fallen into a grate of the fireplace. Each of the five murders were at night, on or close to a weekend, either at the end of the month or weeks or so after. The mutilations obviously became increasingly severe. It's just, I don't know. And only one of them, Nichols, wasn't missing any organs because, you know, it seems that he might have been interrupted. The fact that, you know, things were so different back then that it was impossible for them to basically figure out who it would be unless they had, like, exact eyewitness being like, nope, this guy did it. Yeah. Caught in the or, act and then held somehow or... Right. You know. If someone said, if a, like people were like, oh no, I saw John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt running down the street, or I watched him, you know, if you don't have like definitive, they're yeah. not gonna catch. I saw this guy that I know covered in blood. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or she was talking to the neighbor over there, and now she's like not 20 minutes before you guys found her body. So obviously, go look at him. You know, if the. And then if they go to the other place and find blood or, you know what I mean? Like there's not, back then they're, they're not going to have like blood spatter analysis and, you know, people taking fingerprints and DNA evidence and any of that. Yeah. Yeah, It's like, I mean, even consider H.H. Holmes, they got him because they found bodies (laughs) like the two girls in the trunk. Yeah. If they didn't even have that. How would they then prove that it was him? And yeah, yeah, and and the thing with the with these murders, Mary Jane Kelly is in general considered to be the 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 final victim, like definitively. Um, and it's assumed that the crimes ended because it, he either died, he was in jail, institutionalized, or he immigrated somewhere. Which I'm thinking closer to that. It's mm-hmm. making me wonder, like, if maybe they had heard some descriptions that might have been a little close. Maybe they're, like, I don't know, in a paper they had a sketch or maybe the hair color or something. Maybe something made him uncomfortable and he went to another area to continue. Yeah, that's I don't totally know. possible. Well, really, anything's, po- anything's possible with that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did you... Did you know about the weird connection to H.H. H. Holmes with that? Yeah, I know. I'm sorry, but H.H. H. Holmes, <laughs> H. H. Holmes was bad, but it, he wasn't like, like, yeah. if you saw it. Yeah, well, there's that. It was the 2017 show on Dis- History Channel, I think, called American Ripper, where H.H. H. Holmes's grandson was thinking that he might have been Jack the Ripper. But the treatment of the bodies was completely different. Like, even if he did happen to go over to England 
and commit some murders. Like, the MO was totally different. Like, Holmes was more, I'm gonna kill you and, and sell you for profit. And Jack the Ripper was just mutilation and, and cutting people open. So, I don't know. Yeah, it was, ugh. Oh, I did not expect them to have, from 88, <laughs> 1888, I really didn't expect them to have an actual photograph. And there was another one later on where they were talking about other possible murders. But the the woman that they'd showed a picture of, it wasn't as gruesome. It's It was easier to look at without it making you, like, ill. Because her head was down, and it's just from, like, the chest up, and you could just see red like um on her chest so all you know is just like that her throat was cut but everything else wasn't didn't seem to be mutilated mm-hmm. and it just said that there was a stake shoved into her abdomen which doesn't sound ah. which doesn't sound very like on par with Jack the Ripper to be honest yeah he seems like more he, like knives stabby and, yeah, yeah not so much just a random stake just shove it in there and leave it so i don't know yeah uh, and that was what I had for Jack the Ripper. That's gruesome. Jeez. Yeah, it's pretty dark. Oh. I guess, I don't know. What would our hell yes have been for this week? Uh, we had our birthdays. Yeah. We're a year older. <laughs> Whoa. Got some so cool This shit. millennial is not excited about aging. I don't really care, I guess. I don't know. I've always been like, eh, it's life. It's I'm going to get older. It's happening. I can't stop it. So I've never really worried too much about it. Other than just being annoyed with my body yeah, <laughs> as it ages. Yep. That's pretty much it. I do find it funny that from time to time, I will get carded still. And that makes me giggle. I do so too. Like, like, I am three years away from 40. Why? <laughs> like, I am sorry, but there is no way you think I'm under 21. Like, that's cute. I appreciate you, but don't be condescending. Like, come on. you. There's no way yeah. in the world you think I'm under 21. My chubby, non-makeup wearing self uh, toting a child with me does not look <laughs> under 21, but thanks. Or what they'll do is they'll first ask me for my birthday. And then after they hear 87, they're like, do you have your ID? And I'm like, why? <laughs> and it's always the younger generations. It's probably they hear 87 and they like think, oh, that's forever ago. There's no way anybody's been around for forever ago. <laughs> Listen here, you little shit. <laughs> it's only 34 years ago. You leave me alone. If it starts with 19, that means you're <laughs> you're old enough. You don't even have to look at the ending year anymore. Oh. I don't even want to think about that. It's true, though. And now kids born in 2000 can drink. Yep. <laughs> Big yikes. You look like you're just done. I'm God done with that thought. Exactly. Yeah, it's only going to get worse. Yay. <laughs> I did find out, though, this wand that we had discussed previously. It's Bellatrix Lestrange's wand. Oh, okay. Like, I knew I had seen it somewhere. Now I figured it out. I gotta see if I can do something cool with mine. Like, you see the some 
It's like you can put a magnet in it and it connects to another thing. And then when they touch, it'll open like those cool desks like that. I was like, I wonder if I can take my wand and just make it into something neat. That would be cool. Or those, um, there's one guy on TikTok that does the is it RFID readers and all the Disney stuff. So he, if he puts his phone up to a certain thing, it'll like play sound and change lights in the room. And mm. I was like, that would be fun. I want to do that. <laughs> But then that requires, like, programming and, and skill. I don't know that I have that. <laughs> I definitely don't. You probably do now. <laughs> I could probably figure it out. But I don't know that I want to take the time to figure it out. It's my... I can replace a shower head. I can change a tire. I can build you a desk. I can't do extensive... Coding, I, I techie stuff. would cry. Yeah. Well, it's funny. <laughs> the other day, my husband... <laughs> Blamed me for moving bricks, which then made the basketball hoop fall over onto his truck and dent it when we had a high wind. And I was like, when have you known me to put effort in to move something physical for no reason? (laughs) I was like, really? What would be the purpose? And he was convinced that I did it. I was like, it was a high enough wind. The ladder fell onto it. I said, I wouldn't be surprised if the ladder knocked it into the right. truck and he was like well the bricks are stacked there perfectly still like you picked them up i was like it's like you don't even know me at all <laughs> there's there's no way on this earth that i would just move bricks for no reason and then just stack them there like no right it would never happen i said you can't get me to fill a wheelbarrow and move it across the yard to do some things like, I'm not doing anything physical if I don't have to. And that includes moving bricks for no reason. <laughs> right. It's like, God, we've married for 15 years. It's like, you don't even know me at all. He probably did it and didn't want to admit his error. I, I mean, who knows at this point. <laughs> Guys. <laughs> and I swear sometimes he does stuff and then forgets that he did it and then blames me for it. And I'm like, yeah. really? I watched you do it. No, you didn't. It's like, all right, you're not gaslighting me here. <laughs> I know it was you. I always, uh, a lot of times I would think like, I need to get a camera. Like, n- just like a, like a home security system or a camera that just records so that, you know, it's not like I'm specifically trying to record anything in particular, but when something like that, like that happens, I can go to the tapes. <laughs> yeah. Wind it back. Oh, see right there. And then just stare at them while it plays. We're like, and as I stated. <laughs> as the evidence shows. Evidence, as the evidence shows. Exhibit A here. And then just go, you are a moron. And walk away. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All righty, everybody. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and watch out for the crazies. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.